0: Morning. How's everybody doing? All right, good. Hey, if you don't know me, uh, my name is David Sorn. I'm the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. You know, it was in my eighth grade social studies class that I really started to think a bit more critically about international news for the very first time. You know, I think most Americans are semi-aware of what's going on in the news in our own country, but a lot of us tend to be significantly less aware about what's happening outside of America. So each week in my social studies class, Mr. Lewis, my teacher, made us look up global news stories in the newspaper. Anyone remember the newspaper? (laughs) He's coming to your door. And we would do little write-ups on him. And I learned a ton about what else was happening in other places in the world. And when you look outside of America, you see all sorts of different challenges. Not that we don't have our own challenges, right? But you see countries that are dealing with military coups or civil war or many countries where they just had another election and the same leader won with 99% of the vote for the fourth or fifth time in a row. And what you see around the globe is a quest for power. And why is it that we crave power so much? And how should the Christian respond to this innate sort of desire that so many of us have for power? And I want to get into that today as we continue to just study the Bible in the book of Luke. So let's open our Bibles together. Uh, There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. Uh, We're going to be on page 720. Uh, Luke is... The book that we're in—it's one of four books in the gospel or in the Bible, specifically about the life, uh, the teachings, the death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we've just kind of been walking through it verse by verse. Uh, where we are contextually right now—it's uh, Thursday night. Jesus is going to be executed the next morning. They're going to put him on the cross. Friday morning, he's done the Last Supper with his disciples. He went out to the Mount of Olives, specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane, to pray. And we're going to join the story kind of at the end of his prayer, where still the setting is still in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Luke chapter 22, I'll look for that small number 47, and that's where we're going to start. <clears throat> Here's what it says. It says, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up. And the man, who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. Now remember, in, in those days, that's how males greeted each other, with a kiss on both cheeks, right? And it says, but Jesus asked him, Judas are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers, so these are the disciples that are with him, saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, the Gospel of John actually tells us that this is Peter, the disciple, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, If you read the book of Luke from the beginning, what you see is as Jesus' ministry grows, he continues to attract thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people come to hear him speak or to be healed by him. And the religious leaders of the time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they grow insanely jealous of Jesus and they want to get power back for themselves. And how are they going to do that? Well, they're going to do it the world's way, what the world always does. They try and get power over Jesus. So they arrest him, they beat him, and they kill him. And they use Judas, one of his disciples, to find him. Because remember, Jesus has thousands upon thousands of followers. So they got to find Jesus at a certain time where there's not a crowd of people around him. That's why they use Jesus here and they arrest him with swords and clubs. And what do the disciples do when they feel like this amazing kingdom that they're helping to establish is threatened? Look at verse 49 again, if you still have it on your lap. It says, when Jesus's followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? So when they feel threatened, and they feel like everything that they work for is going to come crashing down, they resort to the same idea that everybody else in the world seems to have, which is to fight, to get power over by conquering another. And we see this sort of thinking not only globally today, but you can see it right here in America. And you see it more and more each year, even amongst Christians who increasingly feel that if we're going to fix this country, we have got to get power over others. But I would tell you that's a misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God in the Bible. If you want, read through the book of Luke or read through the book of Matthew. He talks about it often. It's also called the kingdom of heaven and study what Jesus means by that. What he teaches on the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is how we live how we should live when Jesus is our king. But to truly understand God's kingdom as it relates to power and as it relates to this passage, I think there are three really, really, really important things that we as Christians living right now in 2021 in this country need to remember. Here's the very first one if you're taking notes. To truly understand the kingdom of God, we must realize God's kingdom is not established by the sword, but the cross, Now, this may seem very self-explanatory to you because we currently live in a culture that generally abhors violence, but this has not been self-explanatory to some Christians throughout history, and it may not be self-explanatory in the future. So the disciples, they want to establish God's kingdom. Now, they're thinking a lot about an earthly kingdom, but they're completely willing to keep Jesus in power through the sword, but Jesus sharply rebukes them. Do you see this? Look at verse 51 if you have it what does Jesus say to them? He says, no more of this, no more of this. In other words, this is not my way. See, when the church wields the sword, the worst of the worst happens. Uh, The other day I was uh, talking with a, a guy who goes to our church who's a college student, and I asked him, I said, what is the number one objection that you get to Christianity today on the college campus? on a college campus, and he said, it's the Crusades. It's that awful time in history where many people just didn't even know the Bible, right? Because it wasn't even in their own language, and the people that knew it abused it, and they killed other people to expand the cause of Christianity. See, when the church wields the sword to expand its kingdom, the worst of the worst happens, and what people see looks nothing like the love and forgiveness of Jesus. Now, let me make an important clarification here, because some of you are already thinking this. As we study this passage, Luke chapter 22, 47 to 53, the point of this passage is not that no one should ever use a sword. That's not what it's saying. This is not a passage about pacifism. But this is a passage that teaches we don't establish God's kingdom through the sword. You see the difference? That's important. And the sword here stands not just for literal violence, but I think it can also represent any sort of powerful coercion where we would be forcing people to do something in God's name. Like a historical example of this would be When Christianity first got to Africa, uh, many uh, people misunderstood it because it was such a different concept than they were used to, especially through individual faith. And so sometimes you would have a chief that would convert to Christianity, and then because he didn't fully understand Christianity yet, he would then force everyone in his tribe to also convert to Christianity. And as you can imagine, that sort of power over a person doesn't result in a love, a true, genuine love for Jesus. And so the disciples, they want to fight. They want to establish the kingdom with the sword. But what does Jesus do? He allows himself to be arrested. In fact, he says something really interesting. If you study the same story in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew adds one other thing that Jesus actually said that night. I'll just throw it up on the screen for you. Matthew 26. Jesus said, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. By the way, you know how many angels that is? (laughs) 72,000. It's pretty amazing, right? He says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? He's essentially telling them, that's not how God's kingdom is gonna be established. It's not through the sword. It's through the cross. And the same is true for us as we bring God's kingdom to this world. We do it not by getting power over people, but by dying to ourselves and to our will. By letting go of selfishness and serving other people. By letting go of our fear and boldly sharing about Jesus. I think of, of the missionary Jim Elliott, who I've shared about a, a number of times this year. I, I've read a book about him uh, this year. It's called Through the Gates of Splendor, uh, written by his uh, wife, if you want to read about it. Uh, Jim and four other uh, missionaries were uh, very famously uh, martyred in the South American rainforest as they were trying to bring the gospel to one of the tribes there. Uh, one of the things that I learned about the story that I didn't know previously when I read the book was that the missionaries actually were armed. They had guns because they thought, you never know who you're, what kind of animal you're going to encounter in the country, you know, in the, in the rainforest, excuse me, and just in case, you know, just you never know. But they had talked to each other diligently about this before they went, and they said, whatever happens, even if we are attacked, we will not fire because they said these people were trying to bring the gospel to, they don't know Christ, and secondly, if we fire, then the gospel is not gonna penetrate that tribe probably for generations. And so they don't. And they're killed. But what you find out, what happens is, sorry, I'm giving that away I don't know if you were gonna read the book. <laughs> but what you find out is almost the whole tribe eventually, when they learn why these men were actually coming to them, almost the whole tribe, when they hear the gospel, converts to follow Jesus Christ and become passionate believers of him. And why is that? It's because transformation comes from love, not from power. Here's another way to think about this. Okay, who was the most influential person to ever walk the face of this earth? It was Napoleon or George Washington, Genghis Khan. It was Jesus. Undisputed, it was Jesus. The man who never picked up a sword, but carried a cross the most influential person to ever live. And this brings us to our next point. So to truly understand the kingdom of God, we must realize, number one, that God's kingdom is not established by the sword, but the cross. And number two, God's kingdom is far bigger, far more important than any earthly kingdom. So the disciples, they've always got their mind on the earthly kingdom. Even if you go to the first chapter of Acts, they're still thinking about getting Jesus's earthly kingdom established. But Jesus is thinking far beyond that. I mean, okay, think about it this way. Here's a little thought exercise for the sci-fi nerds in the room. Just imagine like a parallel universe. Let's say that Jesus does call down the angels, right? And he evades arrest. And let's say Jesus then seeks political power and he becomes the governor. And eventually, let's say somehow he becomes an emperor of Rome, and he lives to the ripe old age of 85. If he did that, would you even know his name? I mean, how many Roman emperors can you even list? If Jesus picked up a sword instead of a cross, what would his influence have been? See, I find that Christians nowadays can get so wrapped up in and so distracted in trying to establish earthly kingdoms that we forget that God is always thinking bigger. Now, that's not to say, don't, don't misunderstand me, that's not to say that earthly kingdoms or that politics or that legislation don't matter or that they're not important. They're absolutely important. As I said at the beginning, one need only to look to places like China or Nigeria, uh, much of East Africa right now, uh, North Korea, about 50 other countries, to see that earthly kingdoms run poorly have devastating consequences. So yes, vote, do your part. Some of you in this room should run for office. Seriously, you should run for the school board. You should run to, for city council. You should run for Minnesota legislature. We need more Christian influence there. But let me tell you a really important distinction that is often, to our detriment, left unsaid in modern American Christianity. And it is this. The transformation of society is not our primary goal as Christians. The transformation of society is not our primary goal as Christians. This is very nuanced. So listen closely. As Christians, the Bible tells us that our first objective is to glorify God. That is to worship him. That means to like give 100% of your compartments, 100% of yourself to God, to live for him. That's first. And when you put that first, the scriptures say he begins to conform you to look like and to act like his son, Jesus. And then one of the things that change within us will bring is a desire and an ability to change society around us. However, if we get that backwards and we focus first and foremost on transforming society and only secondly, on giving ourselves to God, what almost always results in history is a focus on earthly kingdoms rather than on God's kingdom transforming earthly kingdoms through us. One way that you can think about this critically is, again, I'm just telling you to read the Bible a lot. That's, if you got anything from this, read the Bible, okay? If you read through the gospels, And you ask yourself this question. Do it. Read through and say, what is Jesus' primary focus while he's on earth? You would never say, after reading the Gospels, his primary focus and the primary thing that he wants us thinking about, you wouldn't look at him and say, he wants more than anything to get the right leaders elected in Jerusalem and the right laws passed. You just couldn't. You can't read that in the scriptures. Those things are important. Still important today, but Jesus is teaching that those things are a benefit. They're an outworking of what happens when we put God first and he moves through us. But when we invert them, what happens is we end up trying to set up a kingdom without the king. And without the king, our quest for change inevitably begins to go awry And before you know it, our hands are reaching for the sword, for power. And I see small glimpses of this, tiny precursors of this on the horizon in this country. You know, one way you can see it is by the sheer number of American Christians who devote a significant portion of their time to talking about politics. Notice I didn't say engaging in politics or running for office or serving. I said just talking about politics. They say that they put God first, but how many people do you know? And I bet you could list a bunch of them at this point in our country. How many people do you know that spend hours a day watching political content, reading political sites, listening to political podcasts, and it's obvious by what they post, by what they wear, by what they talk about, that there if you were to ask them, their great hope for the transformation of this country is not revival brought by the Holy Spirit. It's getting the right leaders elected. You know, there are others on the other side of the coin in the American church who have decided... That the answer, the answer to transforming society is to remove all the spiritual aspects out of the gospel, to remove all the moral aspects of the gospel, and just focus on the service aspects, uh, towards the poor, or justice, or the social gospel. And thus, if you attend one of their churches, their church services sound more like political talking points than biblical teachings, And on both sides of the coin, there are people now in our country that are throwing their lives into this hours and hours and hours a day while they read their Bibles once a month and come to church 10 times a year. And there are many people today claiming the name of Christ as their label of who they are. And these people, if they were really challenged, okay, let's say, and people think about this, okay, let's say the opposing party began to really seriously threaten their way of life. These people claiming the name of Christ, I feel like Peter wouldn't hesitate to reach for their sword. But also like Peter, if their livelihood was seriously threatened because of their faith in Jesus, I fear they might deny they ever knew him. And that's the type of Christianity that we're bound to end up with if we keep seeking first the kingdom of earth. But what is the way of Jesus? What is the way of Jesus? That's the key distinction in our passage, right? That's the contrast. You have the the world is coming with this idea of getting power over. The disciples are joining in it. What does Jesus do? The mobs come out to arrest him. You know, Peter's cut the ear off one of them, but that—I mean—in his defense, that very person was there to arrest Jesus, and not to put Jesus on like house arrest for a month. He's coming to arrest him to execute him in the morning. How does Jesus respond to that? He walks up to the servant, and rather than hitting him while he's down, he touches him and he heals his ear. And this is how Jesus continues to respond the rest of the evening and into the morning and the next day. Right, they mock our Lord. They put a crown of thorns on him and a robe and they say, hail the king, and he stays silent. He could have called 72,000 angels, he stays silent. They beat him, they whip him over and over. Christ died for them while they were still sinners. They nail his hands and his feet to the cross. And what does he say? He says, father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And how is he able to do that? I will tell you why it's because he doesn't see them as the enemy, which brings us to a very, very, very important third point. And the third point is this To truly understand the kingdom of God, we must realize that humans are not enemies to be conquered, people to be saved. And my heart worries for the state of Christianity in this country on this very point right here. I think this point is perhaps the clearest indicator that we have that we are Bathing ourselves in the world of politics and only dabbling in Christianity. And this reclassification of people into different groups is true on both sides. It's happening. Because the polarized world out there, it thrives off making you see the other side as precisely that, as other. See, every speech, every news article, every news report is meant, it is purposed to paint the other side as inferior, as intellectually stunted, and even your enemy and seeing if that's the world that you live in and you watch and you read about and you sit in soon enough, you too will start seeing the world divided into two camps of people, the good guys and the bad guys. Peter is able to pull his sword out that night precisely because of this. He sees himself as a good guy fighting the bad guys. But Jesus is able to pull out his healing hand because for him, the world is not divided into good guys and bad guys. It's one group, humans, created in the image of God, all in need of salvation. Hear the words of Jesus. Christ. Let's go to Luke chapter 6. These are the words of Jesus. He says, but to you who are listening, do you, Jesus says this all the time, do you have ears to hear this? I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. How in the world can we actually do that for people that we've deemed our enemies? You can only do it if you see people as Jesus sees them, created in the image of God. People, real people, that without the saving knowledge of Jesus will spend an eternity apart from him. And I think about every one of us, every single one of us in this room. We have people that are around us. There are neighbors, our family members, our friends that we have been classifying in our mind as bad, as wrong, as foolish, as liberals, as conservatives. And Jesus says, you see them first as humans. created in my image. And friends, they desperately need you to see them again, not through the eyes of political media, but through the eyes of Jesus. People don't need to hear your latest political opinions and how they're wrong. How many people will there be in hell that will say about us, you know, I knew all of their opinions on COVID and I knew all their opinions on politics, but they never told me how to be saved. And we won't until we start seeing people through the eyes of Jesus again, until we start seeing people to heal, not people to fight because people are not enemies to be conquered. They're not opinions to be swayed. Move your eyes from the sword to the cross. So seeing the bigger picture again that God has called you to as his follower. Church, we can do this. The church in America has just drifted off course on this. We need to come back to the scriptures. We need to come back to our calling. Our calling is not to get some sort of earthly power. Our our calling is through the cross to bring transformation and love and to start seeing people as Jesus saw them. And so what do you need to do this week? Is there somebody in your life that you've just been classifying and you gossip about them, that you just need to see them and say, Lord, give me your eyes to see them again? Who do you need to pray for instead of just gossip or talk about is there a media in your life that you just need to, you need to cut it out? It just leads you to dark places when you go there. And it changes your eyes and it changes your heart. You just need to be in God's word instead. Is there someone that instead of sharing your political opinion that you just need to share Jesus with and so that they could never say in hell, gosh, I knew all of their opinions, but they never told me how to avoid this place. Church, let's saturate our minds again with scripture so that God will give us his eyes. Amen? Amen. All right, one of the things that we do pretty much every month at our church, because God is doing cool things here as we teach his word, is to celebrate life change through baptism. A baptism is not something that saves you, but it's a really, really important symbol that God commands every person, once they make a commitment to Jesus, to do publicly, to show that our sins have been forgiven through our faith. And we're celebrating that here this morning. Now, we're kind of in an interesting service here at third service. Uh, The person who was supposed to be baptized at this service is actually significantly ill this morning. And so if you pray for them, that would be huge. Um, But we we didn't want to kind of leave you hanging as third service. And so what we're going to do is we're going to show you a baptism that happened just a little bit ago in this space at a different service. And so we're just going to watch the video of that so you can still get to rejoice in a baptism that happened here this morning. Does that sound okay? All right, let's take a look at that.
1: All right. Um, Hello, my name is Kayla. Um, I grew up in a Christian home, and have called myself a Christian from since I can remember. As for many people that have grown up in this situation, I equate my story closely with the book C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. To summarize, the book tells how demons work best not by making big, boisterous chaos in our lives, but by slowly dulling dulling our faith in Jesus. As a child, life was simple, and although I could recite plenty of Bible verses and and sing a plethora of songs about Scripture, I didn't understand the necessity or depth of faith I do today. It wasn't until I was in middle school when I watched my older sister go through a life-altering car accident, followed by years of missed school, ended sports careers, and brain surgery later, that my safe and comfortable bubble of life was shaken up. This was really the first time I remember asking big questions about my life. Why do pain, loss, hardship happen when I believe in a good, all-powerful God that loves me as his own? After a long journey of taking what I had ingrained in my head, I started to process it all in my heart. Scriptures like... Romans 8:18 8, through 19 painted the picture best for me. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Years later, following this first life shakeup that resulted in as good of an outcome anyone could pray for, a very close friend of mine was killed in a car accident. Things become real in moments like these. Death is pretty black and white, unlike the gray we like to live in, with the what ifs, the maybes, and the could have happens. With death, there are so many questions to ask, things to change or do before, but the lesson I learned quickly is that life is temporary, fleeting, and we aren't guaranteed any time at all on earth. However, this isn't all that's left of life. These significant and although extremely trying moments in my life were the times that deterred me from complacency in Christianity. As C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing is it cannot be moderately important. Although although these experiences were tragic and trying, they pushed me to lean into my creator every day rather than the usual take-in-convenient relationship. The absolute I can count on is that if I were in the place of my friend, I know where I would go after because I fully believe with immeasurable assurance that Jesus died for my sins in my place and he brings purpose to my life. I hold on to that truth daily and I hope you consider that answer for yourself. Today I stand in front of you to pronounce my faith and assurance in Jesus Christ publicly. I have with me my sister and fiance who have played an integral part in that continual development of my faith. Thanks.
0: clap even though it was on video. (laughs) It's fine. It was just half it. Okay. You know, you you look at this passage, you hear this story, and I think even, even right here in Luke 22, there is not just a teaching for us, there's an invitation here. It's that even we who have opposed Jesus, I think to my own life, you know, before I knew him, I mocked him. I persecuted Christians. Even to us who have opposed him, even to us who have ignored him or not lived for him, that we can be forgiven. It's right in the story of this man whose ear is cut off. You know, he's, he's coming to arrest Jesus, right? This is not a, a, a small thing. And Jesus walks up to the man, and right there, Jesus totally has the right to execute judgment on this man for his sin. I mean, this man is trying to aid in the execution of the Son of God, You want to talk about big sins? You know, sometimes we say, well, that's a really, this guy's literally trying to kill Jesus. And Jesus comes to him in love. And today to every person in this room, he comes to you in love with an opportunity of forgiveness. Because the very next morning, he is put upon the cross and he let it happen, right? He could have brought the angels. He could have stopped it, but he let it happen. Because he needed to die for your sins. And that's the offer that's in front of you to be forgiven. You can't get to heaven any other way. It's not by being good enough, it's not by getting your act together, making all your relationships right. It's through Jesus. It's through believing that he died for you. And don't don't say, but David, you don't know my story. It is a mess. It doesn't matter. Were Were you in the garden trying to execute the Son of God? He comes to him with forgiveness. And he comes to you with an opportunity of forgiveness. And as Kayla said in that video, don't put this off. Don't say, you know what, I'm going to do this, but not now, maybe later. You don't know if there is a later. If you need to turn your life over to him, do it now. Let him forgive you. It's through this belief that we are forgiven and that we have eternal life in heaven. In fact, I'll give you the opportunity right now. Let's just close our eyes, everybody, and just just bow your head just for a second. If that is you, and you do need the forgiveness of God, you need to turn your life over to him to be forgiven, to be saved, to go to heaven. This is how you do it. Say, Jesus, I believe you died for me. I'm turning my life over to you. It's not gonna be perfect, but I'm giving you my life. If you need to do that, to be forgiven, to be saved, what I want you to do is just where you're at real quietly, no one's looking at you or anything like that, Would you just stand up where you are where you are, just to sort of mark this moment in your life and let God forgive you? If that's you and you need to do that, would you just stand up where you are right now? Go ahead. Anybody here in this service that you need to just do this today and turn your life over to him. I'll give you a second here. All right, I'm not seeing anyone in this service. You can open your eyes. I, one of the things I'll tell you, if you're kind of on the fence, you can do it at any time. In fact, let me tell you a quick story before we head out here. Just after the last service, there was a man who uh, came up to me in the lobby and uh, he, he didn't respond in the service and he came up and he said, "I basically, I can't leave here today without doing this. I need to turn my life over. So you don't have to do it in the service. You might say that to a friend tonight. Maybe you call a friend Or get together with someone and say, I got to do this. At any time, Jesus is there waiting for you to come to him. And he will forgive you, all right? All right, let me pray. Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing. We love you. God, we ask as we dive into this passage, uh, even some more at house groups this week, We kind of sit with it, that you give us your eyes. How we lost it in so many ways. Give us your eyes to just see people again. To love them like you love them. We just ask for that. We need that, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks for it. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.